This is the Epilogue audio experience. It is incredibly difficult to predict which game is going to be a success because nobody could have predicted that having birds fly at each other would be like a success. On this episode of Jamsters, I am joined by Saloni Segal. General partner at Lumikai, India's first gaming-focused and interactive media fund and early-stage venture capital firm. Saloni is also the world's first female general partner of such a focused fund. She's been on all sides of the table as an M&A banker, entrepreneur, and now as an investor. She's been conferred with many incredible awards and honors, among which is being a jury member at BAFTA Games Awards in 2017 and the iconic Women Leader Award by Women Economic Forum 2018, amongst many others. Saloni, it's such a pleasure to have you on Jamster's podcast, and thanks for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me, Hardik. It's my pleasure. Saloni, uh, playing games for me uh, was cyber cafes and playing games like uh, The Prince and Contra and Need for Speed and mm-hmm. Counter Strike. And Counter Strike particularly was huge uh, on my engineering campus, and mm-hmm. hours and hours would be spent sort of mingling and socializing with friends online. What are some of mm-hmm. your early memories of playing uh, video games? Yeah, so well, you know, I grew up playing games, and I spent a lot of time playing Civilization and SimCity and The Sims and. And and to be honest, where I was growing up, I I didn't see anyone like me playing games, and I didn't see anyone like me in games. So for me, it was quite the anomaly, you know. So even for me, playing pinball or or you know just playing PC games, for example, was you know I, w- I was just often the only girl in a crowd of of boys uh, playing mm. games. So for me, it was very. entrenched in my mind that the word gamer represents a a 13 year old stuck in his basement or in his room <laughs> playing games and you know i never identified myself as a gamer and actually that's very true for women till date most women don't self identify as gamers that's actually a real problem but uh, and and let alone to think of myself as you know many years later fast forward that i would be in the gaming industry and i would eventually have a career in games running a private equity fund or a venture capital fund which would invest in in this industry is was was really a far thought like if somebody told me that when i was like 12 years old i would have probably laughed them off I can imagine. I'm very curious, you know, Saloni. Uh, what has been um, the important juncture or a foray into the gaming space? What is the inflection point? So you know, I think there were, I guess, multiple inflection points. You know, I think there wasn't just one. I think your entire life journey kind of leads you to where you are at this point of time. You know, I, uh, as as I said, to be. If you look at it statistically, I shouldn't even be here. I left in, so I've spent half my career in India. The other half of my career was was in the global markets, and I spent my, you know, nearly twelve years in Europe. And hmm. I spent my first half of my career in investment banking and private equity. So I spent time in Morgan Stanley and and Barclays, and I, you know, amassed about ten billion dollars in M and A experience. All were. It were fantastic experiences, but I was completely burnt out, and I decided, you know, I'm nev- not going to do finance, and I need to figure out something more meaningful. And then a colleague of mine from business school said, "Hey, by the way, do you want to build games with me?" And I was just like, "Well, mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's my obvious calling in life, but okay, sure, it sounds like fun." But I think there was a deeper purpose to it because when we started building that company. Uh, it was a it was the genesis of that company was to actually solve a problem uh, 50% of casual gamers in the world are women but less than 20% of games are actually built for them so i started to joke that if i wanted to see a female protagonist in a game i'll probably have to build it myself you know so mm-hmm. the vision mm-hmm. behind that company was to build this immersive world with narrative and dialogue to enable meaningful interactions with ai characters but with a focus for female audiences or women who didn't consider themselves as gamers and we did a bunch of cool stuff we had a great team we did a bunch of interesting partnership we had avatar based messenger game integrations we did tie ups with celebrities and brands and influencers and you know that's when i became a jury member at the bafta games awards as well and 
through that, I started getting really immersed in the gaming ecosystem. And I started to recognize the world as a game mechanic in disguise. And if you take a step back and if you start to look at the world as it is, you will see that every successful consumer facing experience that you see is actually a game mechanic in disguise. You know, you take Instagram, you take Facebook, you take uh, Pinterest, you take Slack, you take Notion, whatever it is that you use, they have mm-hmm. all leveraged game mechanics. You know, your likes, your leaderboards, your uh, notifications, they all trigger the dopamine hits that games have used so effectively uh, as as mechanics. And I started to appreciate the industry so much more because there's so much creativity and there's so much science in that industry that it, it also uh, started, I guess, an internal you know thought process to say, well, well, how does this, how do you kind of make this into an asset class? Is this an asset class that's going to start becoming investable? And, and I started seeing that as a, as a reality around me because you started to see this next generation is generation, which is, you know, 10 years younger to me, who's growing up with mobile phones, who learns how to swipe before they can type, who's spending more times on their devices and they spend more time playing games than they do watching TV or listening to music or even watching cinema. And that's when I started to realize, wow, this is going to be a massive, massive, massive business. And that's when I made the jump into VC. And, you know, I I joined a fund, which was my investor and it was a fund called London Venture Partners. And I spent some time Mm -hmm. there and, uh, you know, through that, and that, that, that was a fund where, where we covered Europe and North America and through that, I started to, but and I'd always kept uh, abreast of the India market. And mm. I started to get a lot of deal flow from India. And I realized that there wasn't a sector focus fund in, for the India market. And uh, I, there was this hunger for Indian entrepreneurs who were saying, well, you know, we're talking to investors here. We're really seeing there's potential for the Indian gaming market, but nobody really understands the nuances of building gaming businesses. And that's when I realized that there is potential to build a sector focused region focus fund in India. And that's, you know, I came back to India in 2019 to launch Lumikai, where I met my business partner, Justin, and uh, we launched Lumikai mm. last year. And we've, mm. we've done about seven investments. We've announced five of them. We've got a fantastic uh, set of co-investors and we've got a fantastic investor base of some of the world's largest global strategics, media companies, financial institutions, and family officers who are part of our fund. And mm-hmm. really, we've uh, everything that we had hypothesized um, has panned out in the market. And, you know, I think more than that, I guess it has been a personal uh, accomplishment because not only did I feel that, you know, if I had to see a female protagonist in a game, would I have to build it? But it was also a personal undertaking that, if I had to be, see a female protagonist, I'd also have to finance the game myself because so many times as a female entrepreneur, when I used to walk into a room, people used to be surprised to see a female entrepreneur pitching a gaming company. And many times around, they would be very surprised to see a female VC talking about gaming. And mm. I think uh, I think I, I have, you know, there was also a personal motivation apart from just the business and the commercial aspect of of launching a fund. And I think both... I feel very satisfied uh, with with what what we've accomplished, and but there's a very long way to go. Uh, but mm-hmm. that was essentially the motivation behind being here so far. Interesting. I want to jump back to the time when you mentioned about the business school, which is the IESE Business School, and mm-hmm. your startup, which you mentioned, which is truly social. Um, yeah. Between this period, uh, when your friend approached you, um, I understand you don't have a developer or a coding background. That's one. Mm-hmm. Um, second also is, uh, were you exploring other options at that point in time or this was something that was straight off the bat and you figured that this is what you would like to do? Uh, or were you exploring other options as well? Because you mentioned you were burnt out uh, after the banking uh, stint. Uh, what what was going through your mind then? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting, uh, you know, I was... I was a reluctant entrepreneur, you know, I'd, um, I come, even though I come from a family of entrepreneurs, I always used to say, well, you know, I have, I'm, I'm not going to 
get into entrepreneurship, but somewhere, you know, at dinner table conversations and, and you know, anybody who comes from an entrepreneurial background will tell you that that some, somewhere, somehow that just gets imbibed in your DNA. You cannot escape it. If you've grown up in an entrepreneurial family, you are going to you're going to become an entrepreneur some somewhere or the other. And I think that's mm -hmm. that's eventually how it happened. Even though I didn't have a uh, coding background or a technical background, uh, my co-founder had product background, and we eventually hired and built a team uh, with uh, with very strong tech and design and, and art background. And, um, and I think that helped us in in very good stead. But and I, I think there were lots of learning experiences there, right? Um, as a banker and as a as a person who's you know graduating from business school, you know when you come out of MBA, you start to think that oh, I know so much, um, and you feel like you're really on top of the world. I realized that I have to unlearn everything that I've spent all these hundreds of thousands of dollars learning. So <laughs> I have to, I have to unlearn everything that I've learned and I have to start all over again. But how do you motivate people? How do you build culture? How do you, how do you think about selling businesses? Because as an entrepreneur, you have to constantly be selling no matter whoever, whatever they tell you, you're constantly in sales mode. You're, you're selling to your investors, you're selling to your team, you're selling to talent, you're selling to partners and you have to be inspiring yourself. Um, and it's an incredibly lonely journey, uh, okay. as, as a founder, uh, you know, how do you, how do you maintain that balance between realistic optimism and also at the same time, you know, knowing when to pull back and pivot when things aren't going your way. And I, I call it being firmly pliable, right? You know, when you know what, you know, you have an inner compass, which makes you go forward and do things which other people think is impossible. But at the same time, you know, when you hit a brick wall and you need to kind of stop and pivot or just shut down. And mm. I think that's an, that's an incredible art that great entrepreneurs have. But I think it was all of these things that I learned as, as a founder. And that has made me a better investor. Frankly, I don't think I could have been a great or a investor or a good VC without being a founder before. I, and I, mm. you know, you just can't empathize with the founder. You can't, if you've not been in the trenches, uh, you can't sit and have a conversation with the founder. You really can't. This is, this is such an incredible point. I, I completely echo that sentiment. Uh, I had uh, Vineet Rai, uh, founder of Avishkar Fund, uh, on the podcast a little while back. And he mentioned something very similar. He said that if you are in the trenches, if you've been an entrepreneur, then you'll be able to empathize as an investor on the other side of the table and have that patience, that longevity to understand that there are a lot of trials and errors that an entrepreneur will go through. It's not a hockey stick growth every single time. Um, but when you started out, uh, you belong to uh, a background. When I mention background, it means the bulge bracket firms and the access to capital and resources. Um, did that give you some leverage when you started out uh, building this company? Yes and no. Um, I think there was access to a certain kind of a network and certain kind of a capital, uh, which was great. But also no in the sense that I was an outsider to the games industry. You know, I came in to an industry which is incredibly small knit and it is an incredibly small network of people who know each other and who've known each other for years. And also I was a woman and it's an incredibly male dominated industry as well. And I was trying to build something which was uh, focused on a female audience, which is often under served or ignored or overlooked. So, you know, there were tremendous challenges as well. So yes, uh, I was able to raise a small round of capital, which was immediate friends and family around as so to speak, but getting acceptance into that network took a lot of time. And, you know, so, so to, you know, the word hustle, which I, which I sometimes like and dislike because it, it, mm -hmm. it pushes founders in a way that is sometimes not necessary, but mm -hmm. it, it also, you know, I had many challenges, for example, you know, building a business which is focused on female audiences in a male dominated environment. I would walk into meeting rooms and, you know, VCs used to say, well, you know, oh, great business. It sounds interesting, but I'm going to have my wife or girlfriend or sister, you know, mm. try out your game or okay. try out your product. 
And I felt, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was very limiting to have a sample size of one validate my business idea because my theory was that, well, if I was running a blockchain startup, would you then still go to a, your wife or girlfriend and have a sample size of one test and idea? No, you would ask me questions or you would educate mm. yourself about the market, right? Correct. Unless your wife or girlfriend happens to be a blockchain expert, right? Correct. So, you know, I, I, oh, there was there were many times around there would be people who would, you know, be, oh, well, oh, you're too, uh, we didn't expect to see a woman building a games company so there were these barriers uh, at that point of time i felt and there still are i feel for female founders and female entrepreneurs uh, which still exist very much so and i felt we ran into those um, and over time i think you have to work that much harder to gain acceptance into the ecosystem and we did you know we were able to raise financing and we raised seed cap seed capital and you know we got on board London Venture Partners which is one of the most premier VC funds um, and leading VC funds in the world um, but it wasn't obviously it wasn't a straightforward journey there were many peaks and more troughs and peaks in that journey and it was uh, it, it wasn't easy I mean and but any any founder will tell you that the journey mm-hmm. of building a company is not easy mm-hmm. And when you mentioned a little while back that there were a bunch of unlearnings to do, what were some of these unlearnings that you went through? I guess the first unlearning was around, uh, you know, motivation uh, of team. How do you uh, motivate the team? How do you uh, build culture around your organization? You see, when I came from investment banking and the culture of, building teams and motivating people in investment banking or consulting is incredibly different from let's say of the current startup environment or True. you know it's usually it's it's very monetary it's very extrinsic motivation whereas in a startup Correct. you have to work with very limited resources you don't have capital you often don't have time you're working against the clock you have hard mm-hmm. deadlines and you are incredibly constrained with what you can offer to, to your ta- but you need to ha- attract incredibly talented people and all you can paint is often a vision and you have equity which are, on paper is uh, maybe meaningless but it it needs to mean something for that person to come on board and to you know give you their talent and their time so you know how do you motivate and build culture in a way which is beyond let's say you can bring your pets to work or beyond you get free food or beyond, let's say, mm-hmm. BMW bikes or free holidays, right? Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. learn actually how to build culture? I think that that is something that I have to learn. The second is you realize the limitations of your own capabilities very well. You know what you know, you know what you don't know, and you know that there are things that you don't know that you don't know. Correct. So it Correct. becomes... Very true. Real, it really becomes imperative to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and who are also complementary to you. So I recognize the need and the imperative for building diverse teams. And I maintain that till date, even as a fund, we have an incredibly diverse team. And I think that's, that's incredibly critical to achieve our client success. I think the, uh, the third thing was that timing and luck are equally important and sometimes very key to success. Mm-hmm. The genesis of you know building at that point of time games for female audiences was because they were underserved and untapped. Uh, the, the thesis or hypothesis of us launching a fund in India for the Indian gaming market at this point of time was because we felt it was underserved and untapped and the market has really taken off in the last like 18 to 20 months. But had we had our thesis been on track, but our timing was wrong, nothing could have saved us, right? Nothing matters mm. if your timing is off. So timing and luck are incredibly important. And, you know, every entrepreneur will, will tell you that, that most people don't talk about how important luck is, but that's incredibly important in achieving success. 
that's that's absolutely true i will circle back to this point in particular because this really resonates with with something that happened a little while back on one of our conversations that it really struck a chord i'll circle back to this but mm-hmm. uh, when you started out um and you mentioned a little while back that uh, this was an entirely new space to you in spite of having access to capital networks and resources uh, you faced challenges did you deal with insecurity um by insecurity mm-hmm. also mean being accepted uh have an important voice have an imposter syndrome because you wanted to prove yourself you wanted to prove a point make a mark for your organizations were you dabbling with these issues and if you were how did you navigate that oh absolutely i, I think that's that's an incredibly um that i i think that's a that's a lifetime of uh, the issues that of that, uh, that and not just me i think most women face through the face through those issues actually um i think imposter syndrome is a very very uh especially high uh, you know women who are in male dominated careers who are in um, fields which are male dominated typically face through these problems i definitely faced through it um there were multiple periods of time where i felt that you know I, this is too hard i probably want to give up or you know I'm, you know probably this i, I don't belong here um, and and you go through these phases and i think you rela- start to realize that until you believe in yourself nobody else is going to you know come here and and help you um and you know the career path that i had chosen i had no female role models i had no uh you know i it was it was terrifying in that way that there was a completely so it, it terrifying in in a way but also uh, it was a blank canvas because i could i could be whoever i wanted to be in that sense because you know there weren't any female gps of a fund at that point of time most of the time i would be the only woman in a room and most of the time at least in europe i was the only person who looked like me in an indian face running a gaming company so you know many times you know i could have also paved the way but you know it was it was a route which was plagued with uh, with a lot of insecurity but you have to have some unwavering self belief and i learned the the hard way so i developed uh, tools which made me feel empowered i developed a very thick skin which helped me against unsolicited advice i found the courage to speak up against you know patriarchy or misogyny or chauvinism i understood that there is an expiry date beyond which i could no longer blame my external circumstances and situations for which for things that i thought were wrong in my life and i learned with great difficulty that most of the time no matter what i was facing in my life no matter how traumatic or how terrible or how bad i always had a choice to either reconcile resign or accept to the situation or recalibrate and alter it most of the time i did the latter and i was better off for it and no matter how hard that decision was mhm mhm okay and when when you mentioned the imposter syndrome and you wanted to and you rather found the courage by asking questions and you know questioning things that were not right according to you uh, did the background the strength of a background come in in any form shape in helping you i think it has been uh, it was i've been very lucky in order to have a very supportive ecosystem in the sense that i've had you know parents and uh, you know i've had incredibly supportive parents who've given you know in, interested in me you know the self belief and you know just incredibly unwavering support growing up and who made it very clear that you know you can go ahead and be whatever you want and do whatever you want and there is you know you never need to settle and you know the words compromise and adjust should never be in your in your dictionary because i remember when i was going to business school you know my father's friends used to say oh aap beti ko itna bahar kyu padhane ke liye bhej rahe ho you know iski to shaadi karao hmm. okay um, you know I, or i was reminded of my gender when you know i was told as a woman if you want to achieve success at work i need to invest in a stay at home husband or be satisfied with none since men don't like ambitious women um wow. you know i was re- reminded of my gender as an entrepreneur when i was told ki are ye to you know you're too pretty to be a founder i was reminded of my gender that you know 
it's so unattractive to be aggressive or bossy or opinionated. So, you know, you keep, you hear all these things in your life and, you know, it's just not me. It's every woman who goes through this. And this is great um, interview by Indra Nui. You know, she, she, she said she came back at 11 o'clock uh, home one day from work. And um, I think it was a mother or mother-in-law who says that, you know, there's no milk in the house. And she said that, well, I just came back home. It's 11 o'clock. My husband's been at home since mm-hmm. 7. Why didn't you ask him to go and get milk? And mm-hmm. uh, the mother-in-law said that, you know, I don't care who you are. You will leave the crown, leave your crown at the door because in this home, you're still the daughter-in-law. And Indra Nui says, well, I'm, I'm CEO of PepsiCo Global. But in the house, I still need to be the one who goes and gets the milk, you know. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's, so it's, it's not just me, it's even, you know, every, all of us who are trying to straddle our profession and our personal lives who are, you know, kind of trying to battle these lives of our own are trying to build something of our lives are kind of having to deal with these. Um, and all of us are, you know, it's not just our, our backgrounds. I think you can come from whatever backgrounds and you can break out of these barriers, these you know gender barriers and these patriarchal barriers that you, you, we have societies conditioned us for. Um, but it takes a lot of work, and it's still a, a work in progress. I don't say that I've overcome this imposter syndrome as of today, or I've overcome these insecurities today. I don't think that's true. Uh, it's it's a constant work in progress. Hmm. hmm. I mean, those are some very real challenges, and I think I think. I think it's only when you go through it is when you're able to come out victorious. Um, hopefully, uh, because a lot of mm. people also are not able to see the light of the day. Uh, and I completely understand the challenge. And I, and I think as men, it'll be, uh, we can only empathize the situation that women go through. But I think uh, conversations uh, by individuals such as yourself is where uh, awareness is built uh, and consciousness is built where uh where what things are right need to be questioned and 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 they need to be brought uh, to the attention of everyone, which is fantastic. So uh, thank you so much for doing what you're doing on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll circle back to uh, one of the points you mentioned about uh, the timing and and mm-hmm. uh, to me that was more about serendipity. Uh, mm-hmm. And and uh, this was in conversation with Saurabh, Saurabh Sitaram. He is the co-founder of Kevin Tuss. Again, he was on the podcast and he mentioned something and we had asked about the stock market irrationality. So when, when mm-hmm. we don't see actual growth on the field, mm-hmm. but there is a bull run of stocks how does someone mm. really make sense of that and he said something really interesting he said that it's all about sentiments Hardik. sentiments mm. and riding the wave um, do you think that India is currently riding the gaming wave and uh, what trends do you foresee in the gaming space yeah I think that's that's a really great point uh, you know I think when we started to launch Lumikai let's say about 20 months back you know we started to hear a lot of narratives because at that point of time, there weren't that many believers in the gaming market. You know, we heard a lot of things around, oh, India's, uh, Indians don't play games. Indians will never pay for games. India's a Dow farm. Uh, there won't be any exits in the Indian gaming ecosystem or India will never, uh, you know, where are the unicorns or how can India have a sector focused strategy? And, but all of that very quickly transformed. So yes, to some extent, there is some some level of sentiment involved. However, I think what is more important is that to not try and time the market because, you know, you can have RMG yesterday, mm-hmm. you can have NFTs today, and you will have Metaverse tomorrow. And if you don't understand the industry, it's very difficult to come in and then get your liquidity in and then say, oh, well, I don't like this now. There's going to be a down market. Now I want to take all my liquidity out, but how do I do that? And then you're suddenly stuck. And I think that becomes problematic, especially when you've got so much hot money, which is which are largely momentum driven or FOMO driven, which is currently happening in the market. Because six months back, it was RMG. Now it's Metaverse and NFT, right? So the market is incredibly speculative driven and that's where we urge caution now as a fund we have a long-term 20-year multi-fund vision for the market we are patient we make high conviction plays and we really make plays which are market making and those plays are very thesis driven and we typically make plays in uh, in areas which we believe will be category leading so we don't speculate on what we don't understand and when we let's say look at let's 
see what we're seeing in, let's say, the NFT and the crypto space or the metaverse space. We've seen these cycles before. You know, we've hmm. seen these cycles happen before. You know, then there was the whole buzz around social gaming back in 2013. There was this whole rush around mobile gaming. Then everybody said VR would lead us into the metaverse. There was this esports gold rush. Then there was NFTs promised land. So all these hype cycles have come and gone. And, you know, there have been many graveyards of companies and many investors have lost money. I think it's very important to keep a cool head. And it's always mm-hmm. important to be cautiously optimistic, especially when markets are as frothy as they are. And it's very important to be thesis driven and well researched uh, when investing in this market, because this is a market where valuations have risen and diligence has fallen. And that makes it, you know, it's a time of great excess. So when other people are less prudent, it is time for you to be more prudent, I feel. That's such a great point. That is such a great point. Uh, you know, on, on an unrelated note, do you think that this logic also applies to, let's say, someone who's a retail investor looking at stock market uh, investing? This similar, similar logic when there's a lot of greed, um, when there's a lot of bull run in the market. Uh, do you think this logic would apply there as well? Definitely. You know, I think Warren Buffett has that quote, right? When it's, you know, you should be fearful when other people are uh, greedy, greedy and when, right. when you should be greedy when other people are fearful. And I think <laughs> that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And, the, you know, there's another favorite quote of Warren Buffett that we put in one of our quotes is that only when the tide turns, do you see who's been ah, swimming naked? Right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, I've seen three, uh, three bull runs and three bear runs. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have seen the destruction it can rot. And, you know, uh, we have, we don't learn. That's what is surprises me. We don't learn at all. And what's, what's worrying for me is that this time around, there are lots of Gen Z millennial investors for the very first time putting money in the investing as investors and um, they've never seen a down market. They've never, they've not seen mm-hmm. the 2008 great financial crisis, right? So they haven't, they've only seen the last 12 years or 13 years, which has been fantastic, right? They've only seen markets go down. So they don't have any concept of depression or recession. And that's, that's, I think, worrying, right? So, so you know, this uh, Nassim Taleb put up on Twitter uh, the other day that, you know, all these millennials who are investing in the markets, they all, you know, all they need to do is they need to sit and have a brandy with some of these old traders and keep quiet and just listen because we've seen all of this before. (laughs) So this is, uh, this is, you know, what goes around comes around. And, you know, I think we'll, uh, it's very hard to time when this, I mean, maybe we're in a secular bull run for the next two years. Who's, who's to say, but uh, you know, uh, but you know, I'm I'm just cautious. Uh, and I think I think all VCs in general are just cautious, right? I don't know about that. Yeah, uh, I think I'm sure you'll have to probably speak to other <laughs> VCs to get that opinion. I've I've uh, I've seen some very very bullish VCs, and there are some mm-hmm. who are visibly very very excited and very bullish. So I can't say mm-hmm. that everybody's Makes sense. as cautious. Makes I sense. think we're contrarian especially on certain trends so there are there are uh, all kinds of us <laughs> true true makes a lot of sense you know uh, I'll, I'll sort of uh, extrapolate here this point and when you're talking about all kinds of people and all kinds of vcs uh, there is a lot of a bunch of content creators out there gamers out there streamers out there uh, who now foresee this as a living um, with the current euphoria saloni in the indian market around gaming what does it really mean for for an individual uh, like this who exists out there is it is it mm-hmm. is it blanket opportunities for everyone uh, do some stand out what does it really mean yeah that's a really great thought so it's definitely a uh, it's definitely a market, at least on the streaming side, which is emerging and growing. So at Lumikai, we launched a, a research report very recently about on the market. So what we discovered was when we launched was that there was a lot of a misinformation and and some and many times a lot of uh, lack of information simply around you know market size, 
around monetization, around ARPUs, mm-hmm. about uh, revenue models. You know, how big is the market? W- what are people spending money on? And I think we pretty much spent the last six, five, six months unearthing and, you know, lifting and looking under the rocks and saying, okay, well, what do these trends mean and mapping it? And what we discovered about the size of the market and in terms of monetization trends really surprised us, right? The Indian gaming market is about $2.2 billion and it's expected to 3x to $7 billion by 2026. And this is far Mm -hmm. larger than what anybody else has expected. We also discovered that 20% of the market is actually paying for games at the moment. And Mm -hmm. in-app purchases are due, which is, which constitutes about 27% of the current market at the moment is expected to outstrip real money gaming by 2025. And it's expected to grow at a 40% CAGR. And It's the only industry which is growing. Gaming as the only industry is, is one of the only industries, one of two industries actually, which is growing at double digit caggers. So it's a market which is obviously has a long term upward trajectory. So if you are in the business of gaming, if, how, if, however you're involved, whether as a content creator, as a game streamer, as a game developer, you're in the right mm-hmm. space. Now, what does it mean for you if you're trying to earn a living of being a streamer? Now, we also supplemented this research by a one of the most comprehensive primary research done by, I guess, anybody. The last last research was done on like 500 or you know 1,000 gamers. We did mm-hmm. a sample size, uh, sample research study of 2,500 or 2,600 gamers across wow. the country, across metropolitans, tier one, tier two, three, tier two, tier three cities, male, female, so across demographics. And what we discovered really surprised us. Uh, 30% of uh, surveyed gamers expressed an interest in supporting creators uh, of, and, uh, and streamers. 17% of surveyed gamers actually already engage in virtual gifting and tipping. Which is something mm. which is incredibly surprising because, you know, we never thought that those would be the trends that we would uh, we would expect to see, you know, because there's so much noise around real money gaming and, you know, people are just playing for money uh, that all this other noise got crowded out. But actually, we're seeing people embrace new models of engaging with creators and streamers which is incredibly exciting for us because as a port- as a fund, we have two portfolio companies which are um, in streaming. One is a company called Loco, which is uh, mm-hmm. India's leading game streaming platform. You know, they've got 34,000 game mm-hmm. streamers on their platform, you know, 3 million uh, monthly active users. They've already hit 50 to 100,000 uh, concurrent users on single streams. And these guys are seeing incredible traction. And on the other hand, we've got another uh, host-led, creator-led live social gaming platform focused on female audiences. And those guys mm. are, and these guys are doing, you know, incredible formats for female audiences with the majority of their creators. They've also got north of 20,000 creators, but majority of the creators are women. Majority of their audiences are women who are engaging and hmm. playing games that we've all grown up playing, like, you know, Tambola and Antakshani and Chidya Ur and uh, all the Tolmol Ke Bol. <laughs> like, it's live interactive TV. Hmm. And, um, you know, they hit like 12,000 concurrent users in a live stream in one minute. They have now number eight on the Google Play Store. They've beaten Tinder. And that, and wow. these are, and the large, their focus is largely tier two, tier three uh, audiences. And, you know, we've got women loving it. So, you know, this is the new trends that are shaping India and Bharat. And if you if we didn't do this research, we wouldn't and we didn't see these trends happen in our portfolio companies. You know, we wouldn't be able to say, OK, what is ne- digital India look like? What is the next leap for digital India? 
Hmm. You know, I think in, in also one of the points that you mentioned in the report uh, is that the term gamer, the semantics of it rather, uh, I think is broad, mm-hmm. right? I think let's say our moms who have mm-hmm. a couple of games on their phones are are also uh, people who enjoy games and they might be termed as gamer yeah. and someone who makes a living out mm-hmm. of it full time is also a gamer. So would there be like some yeah. distinction to really define what does it really mean to be a gamer? Yeah, that's great, right? I mean, I keep telling people that the word gamer itself is redundant. I mean, हम मतलब movie सब देखते हैं पर हम ऐसा ऐसा नहीं बोलते ना कि तुम movieer हो. Like ऐसा तो कोई there's no term as a movieer. So why do we even use the word gamer? Because everybody is a gamer, right? And the word gamer in itself is redundant because most people, like most women, or even you know older people who are playing games don't self identify as gamers because the word gamer in itself is fraught with so much bias because you see this nerdy mm. boy uh, playing a playstation when you think of the word gamer right or you say and because and we used to do market studies when i was running my company and i would see these women who were playing games and you know they'd be at candy crush level 50 and i'll be like hey, you know do you play games <laughs> and they'd be like no, no no we don't play games but i'd be like you, you're like an expert at candy crush oh ye to time pass hai and um, you know they would never mm. say that they're gamers so i just feel like the word gamer is redundant you know we like you, you don't say you're a movieer everybody watches movies everybody watches ott exactly but we don't have specific terms for them right so the word gamer in my mind should be removed to be honest and and what do you think they should be replaced by then if if this is not what works i don't know you know i just feel like you know that it doesn't need to be labels like you know gaming is mainstream i think it's high time we start to accept it rather than treat mm-hmm. it as a novelty i think once we stop treating gaming as a novelty mm-hmm. with the need to label it he khatam ho jayega makes sense makes sense so with the with the examples that you mentioned a little while back and i'll also extrapolate that and talk about pubg and fortnite and pokemon go and so many others um why do you think and what are the parameters that makes some games stick so so well look it it comes down to uh, obviously the craft of making games right uh, game making is mm-hmm. as much about the art of making games as much as it is about the science of making games it is incredibly mm-hmm. difficult to predict which game is going to be a success because nobody could mm-hmm. have predicted that having birds fly at each other would be like a success like angry birds would be mm-hmm. not only a massive multi billion dollar successful studio but you'd you'd have merchandise and you'd have two successful Very films true. and you know you'd have a successful gaming company out of it it's incredibly difficult to predict the success of content right so this myth of large addressable markets to build games that will please everybody yeah this is a myth you cannot do that it's very hard to predict it in fact you need to focus mm-hmm. on delighting your core audience there is a game called star stable in the nordics and these guys mm-hmm. build a pc game for teenage girls who like to ride horses right these guys are at 13 mm-hmm. million monthly active users and they've got they're a multi million dollar revenue making machine like they just make money mm-hmm. wow. it's such a niche game but it's an incredibly beautiful game because it just makes money right and it's been long standing mm-hmm. it's been now running for 5 6 7 years like it's a long standing franchise so you know you've got other games like eve online it's run by studio called ccp games it's in iceland um it's playing that game is like a full time job it's like a universe it's a mmo um it's a massive multiplayer online game uh, people are so yeah. immersed in it and you know it sold about the company sold about 2 years back to a south korean company halfway across the world for 450 million dollars um and it was sold to a company called polabis because they wanted to bring Uh, you know uh, eve online's community to their community of gamers which was black desert online and you know they wanted to bla- uh, merge those communities together and it was a very valuable outcome for both right like you know 450 million dollars was a fantastic exit and yeah, sure. so this 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 myth that you need to build content which will appeal to all and which is going to be successful and there needs to be a playbook for success for games 
all of that is is nonsense it's incredibly hard to predict um, what makes a game successful because there is a craft towards building games which is as much as it is creative as much as it is scientific there are certain things that you can do one is you need to get certain things right which is to build a mvp to and identify your core user base like who is that user mm-hmm. base identify your user base test it if tested once tested twice tested thrice if it doesn't work be prepared to kill it iterate it or experiment with it and then try again so game development is an incredibly brutal process so you know it's very rare to say ki hamara first try mein ho jayega like it's incredibly rare even some of the world's best game development studios don't get their first games right it typically takes about 3 or 4 of even 5 shots at goal to be able to get it right the rovio guys angry birds was their 51st game which was a success wow wow So then, so, so then, what according to yeah. you, when you give such an incredible, uh, you know, insight into this perspective, then what does Nazara's IPO really mean for the gaming sector? Then, because this must have been really huge, given the journey that you're talking about and the struggles a gaming company goes through. Absolutely, it's 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 a incredible validation of uh, of their uh, of their tenacity and their persistence, because you know they've been in the market for for about twenty years. and you know they've kind of they've been torch bearers and flag bearers for the industry and they've taken the market public they've taken this industry public and they've basically created a case study and said well it's it's possible and nazara is only one playbook because you see the mm-hmm. gaming industry has a lot of depth and a lot of breadth because there are multiple uh, layers to the gaming industry and there are multiple ways you can slice the gaming industry gaming is there is content there are platforms there is tools tech and there is infrastructure and in the last 18 months we have seen that there is value creation opportunities in each one of these sub segments and sub verticals you can take content companies public you had huge games which went public in in poland and that did enormously well you have ad tech companies like an applavin which went public that did enormously well you have platforms like roblox which went public that did that did uh, enormously well you have publishers like nazara that's done great you have game engines which is infrastructure like unity that's done enormously well yeah so you know there is a lot of depth in the market which most people don't recognize because the game industry in itself is very broad and deep because you're laying the foundation of something which is going to build the future essentially of entertainment and hence it becomes very critical to recognize that these are all building blocks of the future interesting i think i just want to point out something you mentioned a little while back uh, you mentioned that india uh, is a dow market um and by dow i i'm i'm assuming that you mention uh, that as daily active users and not as the decentralized autonomous organization yeah. just want to make that clear for our uh, listeners there yeah 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 but i i mean that's a criticism of the market we don't <laughs> we don't believe that it is a down market right, that right, is a criticism right. just, just that we that often clear, hold of right. the market yeah yeah true yeah. true um and and yeah. you know founders turn to you for advice um saloni and and justin uh, and the team mm-hmm. uh, who do you turn to for advice when you're talking about challenges that you personally face we have you know been fortunate to have a very uh, fantastic set of uh, you know investors uh, who have been part of this journey from day one these were individuals who and corporates some of the world's largest and most iconic uh, media companies and gaming companies who've been very supportive of us and you know these are relationships that you know both Justin and I had cultivated over the last 15 16 years of being in the industry and i feel there are you know mentors and and friends in that network who really assisted us and been part of this journey who we turn often uh, for advice and there are of course you know people in the global vc network as well who we've now developed long standing relationships and friendships with um who who really been further on this journey with us who you know now launching their third or fourth or fifth funds and who you know kind of seen this journey with a distance and you know, they've been greatly supportive of us as well so i think it's a combination of friends and ecosystem supporters who who've been very very helpful 
to us. Lovely. Um, I want to get a perspective on networking and building relationship because I, uh, you're in a place where you are constantly uh, having, you know, requests for your time and get a meeting. Um, and this is, I'm guessing would be different from the time when you were in B school or when you were job hunting mm-hmm. uh, and you would want to land a meeting with someone, build relationship with them and you know, appear more credible in the process. Um, mm-hmm. From constant outreach to now being constantly inbound uh, of, of uh, connection requests, uh, what do you think about relationship building and networking? We really enjoy, uh, I personally really enjoy connecting with founders. Um, I having been a founder previously, the first thing that we did was that, you know, every VC says, oh, find come come to us via a warm intro or get an introduction mm. to us and then mm. we'll talk to you. You know, we did away with that. We said, you come to us and t- message us and drop us an email. You ping us on Twitter. You message us directly on LinkedIn and we will respond. We will respond to you to, the, to as far as our schedules permit and we typically mm-hmm. try and respond. Um, and I think so far we've done, try and, uh, you know, trying to do that as much as possible. So we're very approachable. And the reason why we do that is because, you know, as a VC, you are trying to optimize for outlier success. And if you're constantly only receiving inbound pitches from your warm network, then you're essentially, it's self-serving, right? You're only getting Mm. the same kind of founders come to you from the same kind of network, same kind of validation. So you're, you're not backing a diverse pool of founders. And that's, that's incredibly restrictive. So, uh, and you see that, like you've got, you know, IIT, IIM VCs who back IIT, IIM founders, True. True. right? So we decided to do away with that. And I think that has, um, that has been, I think, one of the things that we've done. So we really enjoy uh, speaking with, with founders um, and we really enjoy, I guess, a good pitch I think what is less enjoyable is when people are not researched about uh, the fund or our thesis, you know, and when we've got people saying, oh, we, you know, we're raising uh, money for a biotech venture and, you know, are you interested? <laughs> like, no, we're not interested. We, that's not our mandate. Maybe you can just for go sure. to our website and see that. Um, or uh, people aren't, you know, appreciative of the time that, you know, if you're sending an email, but you're, you know, sending two lines and saying, hi, I'm looking for money and, you know, I need a million dollars. Like that's not a great pitch, right? I'm not going to respond to that email or uh, networking, uh, which is generic and unspecific that can I catch up with you and get 30 minutes of your time, but it is unspecific and unspecified. And I don't know what the purpose of that call is or that message is. And I don't know why I should give you 30 minutes of my time. Again, those are not going to, they're not going to yield very successful responses. So I think a well-crafted, concise message with a very clear ask, which is well-researched, it, nearly always yields a response from from us as a fund and uh, if not from me it will definitely yield a response from the team so you know our inboxes are always open lovely um one other question that i've often thought about is that when investors who risk their either own capital or uh, raise capital from lps um have a unique perspective on money um relationship with money let's say and most of the people uh, have a complex relationship only with with money um mm-hmm. and um, a lot of emotions attached to it and and for most part i completely understand uh, what do you perceive about money how do you view money hmm. that's a great question um, look, I think money is, money is energy, right? You have to, you have to appreciate it and you have to s- spend it and to be able to, uh, make return out of it, you know? So somebody, uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I read, I think Shankar Sharma said this, right. Uh, that he's, he, when he started his broking days, he was a, used to be a sub broker and he saw uh, one of his other colleagues saw him penny pinching. And said that, you know, instead of penny pinching and trying to save money, make sure that you have enough income and enough, allow yourself to have enough expenses so that your way you make investment decisions will change 
because instead of trying to save money you will start to think about earning money so that you can invest better rather than mm-hmm. trying to save money and that's a that's an incredibly important mind shift to make right uh, it's a very subtle um uh, mindset shift but it's a it's the mindset shift of coming from a perspective of lack and scarcity versus coming from a space of abundance and coming from a space of flow and i think people who are incredibly good with money are people who and who incredibly uh, you know attract money as an energy uh, which i truly believe um are incredibly good with receiving money and are also incredibly good with giving money those are the people who are come from an abundance mind mindset versus people who are look at money from a scarcity point of view who are very stingy and hold the money very tight um and i think that that's the difference so you think that you become rich first in the mind uh, by by yeah. imbibing the values and you mentioned values. energy that's so beautifully put uh, that makes you the kind of person who attracts capital who attracts money uh, or is surrounded by opportunities that makes money um i'm i'm curious to know because you've had such an interesting background with with uh, banking and you've been surrounded by huge huge capital um what are some important pointers you realize about money that you hold important even today as 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 a mindset as as a value creation mindset i don't think it came naturally to me this mindset required a lot of work you see as a family system uh my family as a you know my grandparents came from the partition right so they mm-hmm. lost everything and they had to rebuild their lives when they came to came to delhi so you know they came from multan and karachi so they basically had to uproot their lives they came and they settled and my grandfather was the eldest and he had seven sisters um who to take care of so you know they literally had to start their lives from scratch so you know you and they had a lot of abundance but they immediately were put into a scarcity mindset when they came to india so you know you had and you had partition trauma then you had had my parents generation while my parents were both entrepreneurs my parents also you know took two companies public so they had a lot of abundance but they also had a lot of setbacks in their business and there was also scarcity mindset and i saw that uh, as a child i saw those upheavals and peaks and troughs of that uh, as well so as a growing up when i went into finance and i went into banking i i'd say my risk profile was very low but then i became an entrepreneur and i've also seen a lot of peaks and troughs so i'd say my relationship with money would have been complicated um but it required a lot of i guess self work and there are certain things that i think we uh, that i did as an entrepreneur and it's something that we put in place now uh, as as a fund as well that i brought on board a performance coach as a, as a founder and at lumikai fund we have empaneled three performance coaches to work with our uh, portfolio founders and it's not just about money but it's about broader uh you know how to work with teams how to work through per- per- professional challenges that founders face um how to think about personal challenges how do you rise into the role of becoming a ceo and you know uh, how do and money mindset is actually a very very big belief system or a very limiting belief system that actually a lot of people have uh, so i'm very surprised you actually asked that question but actually it is more common um and it often limits growth of founders without actually knowing it so we work we help uh, we help founders through this because i i've actually seen that through through my founding journey as well and it's only over time that we started to realize that these are things that you can work on through through self work and through coaching that you can overcome this and um, i think it's it's again as as you know life is is work in progress and you you go through it uh, but it's um, it's very fascinating to see these are how how you pick up these belief systems from your environment and how you imbibe these things from just family systems around you and it's how these, these are all just energies so true so true i think i think i'm i'm so glad that you mentioned about the point of having uh, 
performance coaches and and leadership development coaches around because i think i don't think this is spoken about often uh, in the space where it's needed the most about you know it's just the mental immunity you need to build to go through the rigor of being an entrepreneur or or just the challenges life throws at you right i don't think each one of us individually is capable of handling you know however seasoned you are uh, you know to be able to handle the amount of stress life can throw at you absolutely absolutely and you know you're you're like an athlete like an entrepreneur is like an athlete and there is you know every athlete has a coach but i'm surprised that and every successful entrepreneur in the west at least they have coaches but i i'm very surprised that in india most people don't talk about uh, executive coaching at all or they talk about executive coaches at a very late stage or actually not at all and this is something that we realize that you need to start imbibing this very early on in the journey because you have to as a founder learn to pace yourself you have to be focused you have to train your mind to overcome obstacles you have to think of a goal beyond your own self you have to inspire yourself you have to inspire others you need to learn how to deal with failure how to recoup from injury or loss it's very much like an athlete right so it, an entrepreneur goes through a very similar journey and the first thing competitive athletes are taught is get out of your own way and this is the first thing entrepreneurs need to be taught is get out of your own way and this is what we are hoping that you know our founders work with our performance coaches and are able to overcome that and you know that journey starts at the seed stage the first time you take money and money is a very key part of that oh 100% 100% coming from a vc fund themselves so i can completely imagine how important capital is um is is the is the the coach uh, himself or herself uh, an ex entrepreneur as well is it necessary to be in that shoe Yes, some of them. So we've got three coaches, and uh, two of them are, and uh, actually, all three of them are. Actually, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Because I think it goes back to the logic that you know, if you are if you are a good uh, investor, you've you've got to be an entrepreneur. So if you're able yeah, to coach absolutely. entrepreneurs, uh, being an ex entrepreneur might help. At least, yeah, uh, theoretically, it might help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we I realized that when I was building a company, investors asked a lot about KPIs and little s, but there was very little conversation around shaping emotional and mental immunity of a team as you very very rightly said. And I think this was very critical for us to do very early on and this is this is where this initiative actually stemmed from. Interesting. And 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 more power to you. Uh, for doing this uh, a lot of people out there um, who do not have a top tier engineering uh, you know b school feeder background um, but still want to get into investing uh, saloni is there is there some advice mm-hmm. is there a route to network their way into a fund um, because funds require all kinds of people uh, they also require hustlers mm-hmm. sales folks uh, deep tech expertise as well would yeah. there be any recommendation route uh, to that uh, opportunity So look we uh, recommend that you know the first uh, you should um, think about writing to funds with very specific asks and may, if the funds are taking interns that's often a great segue or a great gateway into trying to get into a full time role so for example uh, we have a current analyst um, who's fantastic right and who came and became an intern and in 3 months we just realized that you know this is just is just fantastic is brilliant and while he came in and he said you know he was very transparent and said you know while i'm not uh, he's a very keen gamer said but i don't understand the nuances of the industry but i'm really keen i'm very curious so I, i just i'm 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 like a sponge i'm going to learn in 3 months he became a full time analyst and you know he's just a integral part of the team he's been with us more than a year and that is always a possibility so i would suggest that if you are looking to get into the vc industry think of ways you can add value to the fund maybe it's a way of saying i'm happy to do an internship or b i'm happy to be an entrepreneur in residence c i'm happy to help your portfolio in some way as a consultant and you know start with maybe these kind of formats even if the fund doesn't have a prescribed role and add value to the fund and maybe you have a sector expertise maybe you have certain sector knowledge that you can build that or a certain network that you can bring to the fund which can help you make yourself indispensable to the fund and if you are good there is always a possibility of a role being created 
but typically you have to appreciate that funds are incredibly small the industry is very hard to get into in the first place and when funds go looking for roles they are incredibly insular in, the, in the way they hire because they are kind of network based we we hire you know we put up our posts online and we encourage diversity we built in diverse team because we would like to have more diverse candidates and we are actually looking for a vp of investment so if there's anybody listening is interested in the gaming industry who has transaction experience um please you know look at the role profile that we've got and please write into us but if you are looking to crack into vc do your research pick a sector of choice research the the portfolio and see how you can add value to the fund so sector specific uh, interest uh, would obviously be very helpful right so someone who has a gaming background or is associated with the peripheral gaming industry as well is a value add to the industry that he's looking to crack into as a vc definitely De- definitely got it got it got it so i think this this would also be logical to apply to other industries as well let's say uh, we're talking about you know any biotech space or medical space uh, the logic would apply similarly uh, there as well absolutely absolutely and even generic like consumer health tech um if you're looking at uh, you know it's it's generic right just saas uh if you're looking at fintech right pick a sector mm. of expertise the worst is when you're saying well especially at the senior hires or like you know the 5 6 year experience set where you've spent 5 6 years and you still don't have a career of choice or you still don't have a sector of choice then i think it becomes very difficult for a vc to plug you into a role because or mm. uh, plug you into a sector because most vcs even if they're sector generalists do have teams which are looking after certain sectors right Um, because mm-hmm. they need people focused on certain sectors so you know you need to be able to demonstrate that you either understand the industry or you have a network in an industry to be able to add value lovely so soloni how can founders uh, creators uh, studios reach you linkedin twitter um, so or email we are very i'm very accessible fantastic so it's been such a pleasure such a delight uh, to speak with you uh, an eye opener of sorts uh, and get a perspective over the gaming industry thank you so much for speaking with me Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a very, very fun conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of Jamsters, please make sure you subscribe to EPLog Media and all major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Jio Seven, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, among many others, for upcoming episodes. You know, I love listening from each one of you. So please make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family and your colleagues and please make sure to drop a comment on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there and also if you're listening on EPLog Media they've recently launched a feature where you can comment on the particular episode too your support is my fuel you can connect with me on Instagram @hardikdivedya or on LinkedIn too catch you on the other episode <laughs>